Faruqi versus Hansen as racism finds its voice, why a bigger surplus is good, NAC starts with a smorgasbord, and good news about electric vehicle batteries. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison and joining me for the 141st episode of The Week on Wednesday, live from our home in sunny yet cold Victoria, is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, my wife, your friend, and sceptical non-investor in non-fungible tokens... <laughs> Van Badham. How are you, Van? I'm so glad I did not invest in non-fungible tokens. Of course, being a person who's been in artistic practice professionally their entire adult life, I don't have any money to invest in anything, but I'm really glad that that hypothetical money I do not have, I did not spend on non-fungible tokens. Or maybe I should have spent theoretical money on theoretical commodities, because as it turns out, Ben, uh, non-fungible tokens are pretty non-fungible. Well, they certainly seem to have a uh, very little resale value. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the... Uh, tulip bubble of the COVID pandemic has well and truly burst and people who bought cartoons of monkeys uh, for tens of thousands of dollars, some of which required loans to be taken out, uh, perhaps regretting that as decisions. I'm, I'm picking this up purely from social media, I should say, and I have to say, you know, I don't revel in anyone's financial misfortune, uh, but I do, uh, like, like an ape, scratch my head. <laughs> When I see people have taken out loans to buy what is a clearly uh, easily replicatable uh, cartoon of a monkey uh, from an anonymous creator. That seems like a strange thing to spend one's money on. You know, I think that people make bad investment decisions all the time. And I can say this with some level of expertise, Ben, because as I, I love talking about at parties, when I was extremely impoverished living in London in, in pretty full-on conditions, I did a number of medical and psychological experiments for money because I had none. And one of them was an amazing study that was between a department Department of Cognitive Neuroscience and an economics faculty, and they were looking at risk-taking behaviours and clever investment decisions. And essentially, you were given a pill, you weren't told what was in the pill, and you were given £100, and you had an hour to gamble with this £100, and whatever you had at the end of playing this game for an hour was what you got paid for the experiment. And what they were proving, because apparently reputation was not enough, was that actually depending on what kind of emotional place people are in, like what pill they may have taken, whether it's accelerated them or uh, been slowed, a, them down. slowed them down, actually changes. Amazing. I mean, isn't that incredible? Mm. So, yes, people don't make good decisions if people are in distress or upset or high out of their mind. They tend to to make really silly decisions. But I think we need to take this whole, this amazing story about uh, non-fungible tokens, people borrowing money from banks to buy these 
Like, well, reassuming banks. Some form of sorry, financial institution. Sorry, I, I should not say banks. Yeah. I realise there is a distinction. I'm just, who is the investment guy who is going back? Popat was talking about this on BlizzCon today. Who is the investment guy who's going back to the board going, yeah, look, it's okay because as security we had, you know, some of their baseball socks and merchandise and, like, a secondhand TV and, like, who were these people? And, like, who were the managers who were like, yeah, we thought it was a good idea to lend people money to buy non-fungible tokens? Very strange. Like, what were the securities against that loan? Was it the non-fungible token themselves? Because they're not they're not actual things. At least tulips are material things. It's a very strange, very, very strange one. And, look, Van... We should also just give a, a quick shout out, uh, talking about uh, investment decisions. Uh, but this, of course, is a good investment decision to invest in your workforce. Unlike non fungible tokens, workers actually are, are productive. Uh, the farm workers at Hussey. Hussey and Co., yep. Uh, won their dispute last week. We t- discussed this in episode 140 of the week on Wednesday last week. Within hours of us discussing it, the workers won their dispute. They had stood together in union uh, and they had brought the bosses back to the table with a proper offer. Uh, These are the baby leaf salad farm workers. Yeah, this is fantastic. And they struck. Like they walked out and they demanded better and they worked through their union and they got what they wanted. Absolutely. And it just goes to show you know you should be a member of your union australianunions.org.au slash wow you can join while you listen to us talk today uh, about all sorts of things but it's important to remember that unlike a cartoon of a gorilla that has no intrinsic value your membership of your union gives you the strength to get better pay rises, to make sure that nobody in your workplace is discriminated against, to make sure that you have proper job security. These are all tangible things that make your life better. So while you might, in a fit of desperate desire to feel connection with the world, be tempted into the... (laughs) Taking a pill and gambling 100 pounds in an hour. I urge you to join your union instead and get involved in what's going on in your union because like the United Workers Union members who struck at Hussey, by standing together, you can actually improve the tangible material reality of your own life. And I feel I should point out, I got... 60 pounds at the end of that. No, no, this is what's really crazy at the end of that experiment. Yeah. And like I was like, because it was playing blackjack. I'm actually pretty good at blackjack. And I was like, wow. That good. And then you got 60 pounds back out. They did. They had pumped me full of like synthetic adrenaline or something. But they were like, oh, yeah, you're in the top 5% of returns. Like the majority of people lost lost a lot more. And they paid me 100 pounds anyway. So I just, I mean, that's a happy story. And I love science. So, yeah. I mean, there's one more thing I want to talk about because I just think this is awesome. And I have a feeling this might end up in my Guardian column this week. There's been a complaint to the Advertising Standards Authority. Yep. And it's about what I think is the best investment you and I have made in some time, which is Diablo 4, which is a fantastic computer game that Ben and I are now talking about totally rearranging (laughs) the texture of our lives so we can just play more Diablo 4. And apparently the complaint came from someone who in the first place said the slogan, welcome to hell, in the advertising campaign for the computer game was offensive to their Christian beliefs. Sure. Okay, all right. 
sure. Um, I mean, are they offensive to my Christian beliefs? No. So maybe that's not a universal standard, but okay. And then the second point was... Also, isn't it only welcome to hell if you buy the game? Like, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so if you don't buy the game, you're not welcome. Yeah. You can't go. Long assume. Sorry, but yeah. the second complaint was that it was offensive to children. Not offensive to children, scary for children. And it's like, well, yeah, like games aren't necessarily and, for children and, anymore. And the game is appropriately classified in such a way as to not be for children. No, no, it's not for it's yeah. not for children, yeah. um, and and that should be fine. Yeah. A place for everything, everything in its place. Adults sure. are allowed to enjoy adult entertainment. Not everybody has to participate in the same cultural spaces all the time. Amazing, and then, but the third point apparently was it reminded them of the hell of lockdown, and it's like we got a cooker, we've got a cooker. Speaking of cookers, Van. Oh, I love speaking about cookers. I've actually made it made uh, a living from speaking of cookers. Tell me about cookers, Van. Well, I think it's I think it's interesting, and I think it's a really good segue uh, because cookers are absolutely going off. The the continual degradation and ongoing slow moving train wreck that is uh Elon Musk's ownership of Twitter combined with Peter Dutton's uh rev up uh against the voice has seen an unleashing of uh absolute vitriol from cookers uh online uh, not just on Twitter but we're seeing on Facebook as well uh, I'm sure if you listen to this podcast and you've checked out our social media properties at times you've possibly seen some of the comments from cookers uh before I've had a chance to obviously um block those people I do try and get to them all this is literally a show run by me and Van. There is no army of moderators to do that. Uh, if you do come across something, do let me know. But there has been um, some developments around this space. We know that Paul and Hansen has for a long time courted the cookers uh, and appealed to them. We know that uh, uh, her offsider from Queensland, Malcolm Roberts, uh, was once part of the quote-unquote sovereign citizen movement uh, and has engaged with the cooker community extensively in their conspiracy theories. Benny, he's a cooker king. He is a cooker king. And yeah, a, like a rat king. He's a little cooker king. Yeah, he's a, like, a, like a rat king. You know when rats get their tails caught together and they become like one big moving rat? <laughs> That's sort of how cookers work, really. They get their little tails, their little conspiracy theories caught together and you see them on the internet and it's seriously like entering another dimension. Well, it's been, They do not share facts with the rest of us. That's no. not what's happening. And it's been interesting because uh, it's been reported in the last 24 hours or so that uh, – Paul Hansen uh, is going to defend uh, a claim made by uh, Green Senator uh, Maureen Faruqi uh, that Paul Hansen discriminated against her under Section 18C. Uh, the Racial Discrimination, Discrimination Act. Act. Uh, and, of course, this comes at this heightened time where we're seeing a lot of racist vitriol. In fact... Ben, I'm just going to share this story because I think it's, I do think it's a little bit interesting that, you know, you and I, we attended a, a function in Ballarat over the 
previous weekend. That's why the weekend wrap was late. Hundreds of people were there. It was a big event. Hundreds of people. Absolutely packed. Wall-to-wall, standing room only at Ballarat Trades Hall. They have more people volunteering than they possibly could have expected and it was that they were kind of overwhelmed. With yeah, volunteers. ran out of organising kits. It was just phenomenal, right? So there's a lot of grassroots support for the Yes campaign for the referendum. Oh, and let's be clear, it wasn't just Ballarat. No. Like, this has been happening all over the country. Like in Rockdale, which is a suburb in Sydney that's not far from where my mother lived, like, it had a town hall event with Linda Burney, who's a local member, packed. You know, like there were huge turnouts all over the country. And these are organising meetings. These aren't, hey, yeah, just come to rally. It's get a kit, sign up, get a T-shirt, commit to going to your local train station, answering questions about the voice. And people who I know who are in the campaign interstate, they're saying this is happening everywhere. Yeah. Like nobody's running up to an empty hall. Like there's this massive positive grassroots movement. And the Yes campaign has been very uh very committed to that sort of grassroots organising model and not a celebrity-led media campaign. People go, oh, well, you know, where is the voice campaign? The voice campaign is doing meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting in actual grassroots communities and engaging with community members and facilitating discussions around what a voice will mean. And that's really been the focus of their campaigning. But if you were on the internet, Ben, you may not necessarily know that. No, because on the internet the response has been incredibly toxic. So uh, I posted up a photo of myself with the word yes written on my hand. Uh, It's had 70,000-something views. That's because you're so handsome. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm glad you think so because I've been uh, called all sorts of horrible things. Um, And look, you know, we in this house understand trolling because you get it a lot. I don't get it quite as much. This is probably the most I've ever had. Yeah, I just want everyone to know Ben is a white heterosexual middle class man <laughs> and the fact that he's being trolled, this is this is extraordinary. Yeah, look, it's it's certainly very interesting and it's not I mean I've I've been I've been attacked by trots on the internet before for all manner of things that they have decided I I am guilty of or have participated in which usually is Yes it was news to me that you were a slave owning cemetery baron Yeah I think I think it would be news to the state of Victoria who <laughs> actually owns the cemeteries um but anyway the the vitriol and it's really very the parallels with cookerism are really really strong for me so people start off with this kind of well i'm voting no uh because i think it's divisive then it kind of devolves into because i think it's racist uh because i think it'll set up an apartheid state uh because i think it's part of the un global agenda uh because i think it will mean the end of democracy uh, uh, and property rights. Like it just devolves into this bizarre rabbit hole. And, and it's and it's really, these accounts have, you know, 100 followers, 20 followers, 50 followers, but they're usually verified on Twitter. Because uh, anyone can be verified on Twitter now. You pay $8 and you get a blue tick, which means everybody gets your content shoved down their throat until you can ban it. Well, look, it has been really interesting because obviously I study this stuff. Yeah. Like... And it became apparent very early on from the moment that the campaign, the Yes campaign sort of coalesced around the hashtag Yes23, that there was an organised 
if it they call it swarming yeah all right and swarming is when you create a bunch of accounts you have a bunch of accounts at your disposal which you deploy at an individual or you deploy at a hashtag and you do it with such aggression and such force and it's all astroturfed yeah astroturf is the opposite of grassroots yeah. it is a fake like one person with a hundred accounts yeah and because I noticed that as well that I was getting these really just off chops, I'm not going to support something that's racist. And it's like recognising the historical, systemic, structural disadvantage of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is <laughs> is not racist, dude. Like that's there's a lot of there's a lot of inversion of thought process yeah, that goes on. Literally nowhere. I this may be very very shocking, and I certainly refer everybody to Armor Rahman's excellent video still on YouTube about reverse racism. At no point have white people been subjected to racism. It's just it's not a thing. That that we can, like it's no. just what well, th- and you know and do you know white people or people who are white are subject to other forms of discrimination. Sure. Women are discriminated against depending on what class you are from. Yeah. You you can be discriminated against at the same time as you're a white person, but it is never because you are a white person. Like and Certainly it feels not Australia. bizarre to say that, but this idea that the voice is racist against white people is the kind of far-right think tank messaging lunacy that I associate with the kind of extremist movements that I study online. And I've got to say a lot of the accounts that I've seen commenting on the yes um, 23 hashtag, uh, who are running this whole, oh, the voice is racist, mm. um, oh, just creating an apartheid state, and some of their crazy things, like the accusation that the voice will interfere with flight paths. If you are uh. seriously voting no against the voice because you read on the internet it's going to interfere with flight paths, can I just say, sir, may God have mercy on your soul because so many things are going wrong in that particular, like, collection of decisions and alignments. I can't help you. I'm not qualified. So, but I want people to be really aware of this because the way that it works as a political tactic swarming is that you're, like, imagine you are an ordinary person. I mean, the people who listen to the show are all exceptional, but some of them lead quiet lives like superheroes in disguise. And you go on the internet and you're like, yep, I'm voting yes. I'm handing out at the train station on Saturday. So excited. Hashtag yes, 23. And then you get 20, 30, 50, 100 people going, you support apartheid. You're the racist. And if you're not someone like me, I'd be like, oh, my God, what is this? Why do all these people hate me? Because it's positioning you to look like a minority, mm. that your position of being of voting yes is subsumed into this massive organic community of people voting no. And I can tell you now, I've gone through those accounts and you would be amazed at some of the things I have in common, Ben. <laughs> I, I imagine there's quite a lot of them uh, based out of Moscow. They and- are incredibly <laughs> pro-Russia and anti-Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. what? A surprise. I, there are some other details of these accounts which are interesting. Do you know who else they support very passionately? Donald Trump. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> Kawinky Dink. Do you know what they are really opposed to? 
Unionism? Oh, yeah. Well, opposed to unionism, unionism, women. Feminism? Drag queens. Drag queens come up a bit. But also vaccination. Oh, right. Yes. Welcome to hell indeed. Oh, dear. And I just, I really want to stress this because a lot of this campaign, the majority of Australians do get their news from social media now. That's how we consume news. And that's obviously where the no campaign is targeting um, messages and communications. And when I say the no campaign, I am obviously not alleging that the official apparatus of the No campaign has spent any money on a dark campaigning operation. I would not do that. I have no proof to make that allegation. I am saying there are lots and lots of people who claim or accounts, not necessarily lots of people, lots of accounts claiming to vote no who are deploying in a strategically consistent way. And I just want everybody to be aware that the best thing you can do Obviously, block, ban, delete on Twitter. Turn off comments, yeah. and so they can, they might quote tweet you going, "Oh, you know, this racist doesn't want to debate," and it's like, "Yeah, I'm not debating with an internet bot troll account. I'm, yeah. I'm not doing it. You're correct. I am not wasting my time on you. If I want to have a debate, sir, I'll go on Q and A." Yeah, look, it is it is phenomenal. <gasps> And, you know, one of our listeners sent through a question uh, about an article that appeared in The Australian by a well-known Australian writer who I won't name uh, because I don't think we should give airtime to specific no uh, arguments. Uh, But it's interesting to note that in those mainstream uh, publications that are Murdoch-owned or corporate or billionaire-owned media, that those uh, articles don't get huge amounts of amplification because these uh, troll and bot accounts are set up specifically as attack dog accounts. Yeah, and they're not they're not amplifying because they don't have big follow accounts. Yeah. They don't have bios, most of them. I, I mean So they're not actually set up to put forward the argument. No, uh, they're just there to attack you. Yeah. And it is really interesting to see that the kind the you know public face of yeah. no, they're not getting amplification. No. I do want to do a shout-out to our awesome comrade Josh Bornstein, literally one of the best people who has ever lived, had a really excellent piece on The Voice in the Age yesterday, and he was telling me that he was copying this internet harassment on the basis of it as well. And, I mean, we've all seen it, anyone who puts yes. And I just want to affirm to everybody, just block them because it's not real. It's not actually real. And you and I had such a surprise because we've been on the internet, we've seen this kind of thing. Like even people like us who are pretty savvy internet users walking into that voice meeting and seeing how many people are there. You and I worked on the marriage equality campaign in Ballarat, obviously, obviously. And I remember going to the the marriage equality organising meeting at Trades Hall in Ballarat. And there were far fewer people there than there was than there were on the yeah. weekend for the Voice One, and the marriage equality campaign absolutely romped it in in oh, Ballarat. Yeah. Like I think it was sixty-two percent. Yes, it or was like massive, like massive yeah. majority yeah. of people voting yes to marriage equality, and I and it was what I kept thinking. It was just like, yeah, it's a distortion field. Yeah. Whoever is pushing these accounts, whoever mysterious entity that might be, and who it is, like, specifically, is it important? The fact is that it's happening. Like, we don't need to infer conspiracies or cabals or whatever. It is happening. It is a thing. And we, as campaigners, need to deal with it. But but it is, 
I just, there's a slogan that keeps coming into my mind whenever I see no stuff on the internet Mm. or hear about no voters, and it is every cooker you know is voting no. Yeah. You know, like if you need a, like if you need a really compelling argument to vote yes, have a look at the kind of people who are voting no. Well, that's right. And I mean, you know, obviously Pauline Hanson and Malcolm Roberts are voting no. They've been very vocal about it and and they they have lawyered up. In a lab, someone once asked, what would it be like if pineapples could talk? (laughs) Pauline Hanson and Malcolm Roberts are your answer. Well, and, you know, this is. We're going to see more of this stuff. You know, they're using the the referendum as a springboard to uh, contest the validity of 18C. They want to, they want this to go to the High Court. They want this to drag out. They've been really clear about this in the media articles that they're prepared to go quote all the way. What it's about is creating that distortion field, yeah. creating that um, illusion invo- of a majority supporting racism, which is actually not the case in this country. That's right, because the majority of Australians actually benefit from multiculturalism because we are a multicultural society, multicultural commonwealth. It's a good thing. And that's not discounting our colonial past. No. You can acknowledge that colonialism was genocidal, bad, and led to intergenerational cruelty and also say that the Australia we live in at the moment has an opportunity not to change the past but to put in, can you imagine, constitutional recognition and a voice to parliament for Australia's first peoples so so we can move forward. And this is an offer from the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community for a way forward to move past the absolutely horrendous history of this country and into something better. Uh, I I look forward to being able to legitimately say our constitution recognises that this is a a land that has uh, been uh, peopled for 60,000 years and our Commonwealth is not just 200 years old but is built on that foundation. I think that's an incredibly powerful uh, story for us to be able to tell the world about Australia and I think having the voice to Parliament as Linda Burney who's doing a National Press Club speech today, is saying, is talking about, is having a voice that will focus on uh, housing, education, uh, healthcare, uh, all of the things where the gap between uh, non-Indigenous and Indigenous Australians has been getting worse, uh, giving advice to government that it's from people who will be impacted by those policies. We all know if you want good policy, you've got to engage with the people who are going to be impacted by it. And for too long, because of the colonial structures we've had in place, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have not been properly consulted. Yes, there have been peaceful Or included. Just basic inclusion. Dan Andrews makes this point really, really well. And, you know, if you can check out any of his videos with him talking about why he's voting yes, you know, he talks about uh, that what we're doing now isn't working. What we're doing now isn't working. This is an opportunity to change what we're doing. Um, And quite frankly, what we're doing now costs billions of dollars and it isn't working. So why wouldn't we ask people uh, in a formal way, in a structured way, what they think they need to have better health outcomes, to have better housing outcomes, to have better educational outcomes and better employment outcomes. Why wouldn't we look for an opportunity to improve the way we spend that money, the way we invest that money? And I think it's a really good, straightforward point. You know, it's absolutely 
time to put in place those formal structures. And putting them in the constitution means they can't be pulled apart by any particular government of any particular day. And I say this not just to say, oh, we have to protect it from the Liberal Party, but there may come a time where a Labor government finds a legislated, non-constitutionally enshrined voice to be uncomfortable and decides to do something that you and I would find reprehensible around disbanding it or diminishing it in some way. This gives it a constitutional place. It means you cannot ignore it. And we know that in a democracy, when you have to listen, when people have to hear what is being said, it's very hard to ignore. You've got to have a very good reason to say, oh, we heard what they said, we know they're saying it loudly, we know they're saying it clearly, but we're not doing it. And if you don't have a good reason, then that has other democratic political uh, repercussions for any government, and I think that's very important. I always think about the shared horror of when Tony Abbott was Minister for Women. Do you remember this? Who can forget? It was just Tony Abbott, literally just that that man appointed himself Minister for Women. Imagine that in every single policy context of your life. Imagine that in every engagement you have with the state, whether it's going to Centrelink or going to a hospital or, God help you, engaging with the police or, you know, like trying to get a loan from a bank, like on every single level, that weird horror of how on earth is Tony Abbott, Minister for Women, extrapolated for an entire community over a 223-year period? It's pretty uh, It's pretty hard to imagine sitting in the shoes that I'm in now, even with my, uh, even with my working-class background, it's hard to imagine how difficult it must be for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander comrades and to have to go through this process as well. I mean, we experienced a little bit of it, with the marriage equality plebiscite, but this is next level. And I just want to give a shout out and solidarity to all of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander comrades who are really doing doing it tough, doing it hard uh, to make this to make this happen and are going through and wading through some really vile stuff. No, you've got our solidarity. Absolutely. And and the solidarity of everybody who listens to the week on Wednesday. And to pay and to non-Indigenous Australians, like now is the time to step up. Yeah. You know, because if you haven't been targeted by racism and don't have a lived experience of what that's like, like what what a a, a great wing person you can be to a movement where the cookers are trying to feast on some really horrendous bigotries and hatreds to psychologically demobilise people. Like if you've been subjected to racism over the course of your life and now you have 500, 600 crazy Twitter accounts all day repeating the language that you associate with cruelty, like of course it's demobilising and that's the point. So it is really necessary for non-Indigenous Australians to step up, step up in the campaign. And I know on this program we have been critical of the Greens for a variety of policy reasons. All of which are very legitimate and you should listen to us. Absolutely. We do focus on the policies here on the week on Wednesday, but I do also want to offer our solidarity with Maureen Faruqi uh, because what was said to her by Pauline Hanson on a public platform is is undeniably racist and inexcusable and quite frankly 
Uh, I hope that Pauline Hansen loses her court case uh, and that the very simple protections that 18C provides to people to not be actively targeted and discriminated against are upheld when it inevitably goes to the High Court. So our solidarity to Maroon Faruqi and her family as they go through what will be a very difficult uh, and awful time. We don't like to see that happen to anyone, even if we disagree with them on a whole range of policy issues. Yeah, I've got no love for the Greens, as I believe is a matter of some record, but my solidarity is with Maureen Faruqi here because that's completely unacceptable. It's not okay. It's just absolutely not okay. As someone once said to me, fight the poets as people and turn the silly poems loose. Now, Van, talking about policy issues where there is some disagreement, I want to talk very quickly about the RBA putting uh, rate increases on hold uh, and why a bigger budget surplus is a good thing. Time to shine, Ben Davison. So people have been uh, saying, why hasn't the government, uh, given they've got this bigger budget surplus, originally projected to be $4 billion, going to be closer to $20 billion, why haven't they just given the Greens what they want and said they'll put $10 billion into housing? Now, very quickly, we've said before there are issues around supply of materials, there's issues around supply of labour, there's issue around just even exactly where that housing would go. No magical housing else. There are there are lots of people doing lots of work to identify um, sites for builds, to identify supply chains to get those builds to happen, and the $500 million that was due to be kind of put out on the table uh, when the Housing Affordability Fund was signed off, there were people already beginning that process of planning. Planning can take, in some cases, more than two years before you can actually build uh, new housing developments. And particularly, particularly if you have councils, uh, not just you know Greens-dominated councils, but councils that don't necessarily want to support affordable housing in their community, then you've got to go through all sorts of appeals processes, which is why the delay to the fund was condemned by so many housing organisations. All of them. them. And and state governments who just saw this as a a dead stop point, right? So back to the point, why wouldn't the Labor government go, well, we've got this money, we'll put it into housing and we'll just do it anyway and we'll move a bill in the very next sitting of Parliament? The reason is very, very simple, Van. It's because neo-Keynesian economics makes it very, very clear that government spending can drive inflation up. We are living in what I would call a crucible period. So at the moment, we have a reserve bank that is dominated by Friedmanite, high priest, monetary... Tory loons. I was going to say theorists, but your words... Tory loons! Your words are probably better. Jane Hume was backing Philip Lowe today. Who? Jane Hume, frontbencher for the Liberal Party, backing Philip Lowe, the governor of the Reserve Bank. Yes, the interest rate guy. So they they believe they believe in a in an ideological position that essentially says you have to have a large pool of unemployed workers in order to keep inflation low because a large pool of unemployed workers will mean that workers don't demand higher pay increases, which means that prices won't have to go up, prices will have to come down to meet lower wages, uh, and that unemployed unemployment will be so uh, so terrible and so bad for people, they don't want to get they don't want to become unemployed that 
you won't have to increase interest rates uh, and inflation will stay low. That's the fundamental premise upon which these interest rate rises have been delivered. At the same time, we now have in Jim Chalmers and Anthony Albanese and I think quite a lot of the Labor caucus a new understanding of neo-Keynesianism, which is to say that actually full employment is a good thing. Full employment and productive employment is good for the economy. It gives, and good for people. It gives people more opportunity to participate in society, in the economics of society. Stable, ongoing employment gives them more structure to participate in the social aspects of society. You'll notice the majority of the new jobs created since the Albanese Labor government was elected have been full-time jobs, record number of women in full-time employment, record number of new jobs in the first year of any government. These are all really good positive things. So that is being weighed against the Philip Lowe, uh, neoliberal uh, Milton Friedman model. So what Keynes basically says is that if times are good in the economy, so unemployment is low, and there is uh, there is growth, some growth in the economy, which there still is some growth, not a lot. Phil Lowe's doing his very best to stop any growth then the government shouldn't be stimulating the economy. It shouldn't be investing more than it needs to to create additional employment because there's lots of employment around, right? Now, that's not to say that every single person who wants a job has got a job. I understand that. It's not to say there aren't other systemic barriers that make it difficult for people to get into employment. We understand that as well. But it's to say that you create targeted programs, which is what the Labor government has done. It's said... Childcare is a massive cost to a vast number of households. Millions of people in this country pay large proportions of their weekly, monthly salary, fortnightly salary on childcare. Reduce the cost of childcare, give people more money in their pocket. That's some stimulus. So why not spend the surplus? Because by taking the surplus and banking the surplus, using it to pay down government debt, you're effectively taking money out of the economy. What this does is that it reduces inflationary pressure. When the government pumps money into the economy, as the Morrison government did when it did all of its, you know, first home buyer this and first home buyer that, it drives up demand. When you drive up demand and you've got limited supply, prices go up. And we saw that. The price of building a house now is higher than it was before the pandemic because the supply of materials is not as great as the demand for new housing. So taking the surplus banking it, using it to pay down debt, reduces the inflationary pressure. It also means that when times inevitably turn the other way, because corporations being only interested legally, only allowed to be interested in the best interest of the shareholder and maximizing shareholder value, go, well, we're going to sack a bunch of people to cut costs. Oh, and we're going to raise prices, uh, and uh, we're going to not invest in the productive equipment that we think has a good 10-year return but isn't good in the first three years. When those sorts of decisions start to get made, 
as Philip Lowe is trying to get them to do by increasing interest rates, making money more expensive, then the government does have the capacity to come in and pick up that slack to go, actually, we are going to intervene. So, for example, in aged care, this is a targeted intervention they've already done. They've gone, the aged care system isn't working. The market, quote unquote, for aged care is broken. Wages are not going up despite the fact that aged care productivity has gone up despite demand having gone up because of the way that market is structured. So we're going to fund a 15% pay increase. These are targeted interventions. It's very neo-Keynesian. It is often difficult to comprehend. It's very intersectional. This piece interacts with this piece, which has an impact on that piece over there. The thing about the RBA and the neoliberal model is that it's blunt, right? You put up interest rates, people have to pay more on their mortgages. That's hard to swallow, but easy to understand. When you see a big surplus and you hear Anthony Albanese go, this is going to this is great news because it's going to bring down inflation, that's hard to understand because of all the different moving pieces that require that are required to make that actually work. I just want to clarify that this is why I married him, everyone, because I just sit here and absorb, absorb, absorb his magnificent brain. When we talk about neo-Keynesianism, we're talking about the contemporary iteration of the, the economic principles espoused by John Maynard Keynes, who is, of course, the economist that uh, who's realised... Saved the world from the Great saved, Depression. Who saved the world from the Great Depression. The one who went, hang on, the way that, the way that we get ourselves out of the depression is to spend, is to build infrastructure. If and literally said it would be worth it to the economy to pay people to bury bottles full of sand and then dig them up again. Like as long as we're generating activity and pumping money into um and pumping money mm. into consumer markets, this will save our problems. And the genius of Keynes was that his he his understanding of economics was counterintuitive. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, oh, well, if we make unemployment miserable and have lots of unemployed people, people won't make wage demands and therefore, and it, you know. And like- it's also understanding that a national economy and a global economy are different from a household economy. So how you and I would run our household, how you, dear listener, run your household is different to how we want the government to operate. You know, you as a, if you're a renter or a mortgage holder or maybe you've paid off your house, you have a set amount of money that you think is going to come in every month or every week or every fortnight and you and you budget yourself accordingly, right? And you go, oh, look, I might be able to borrow to go on a holiday and I can pay that back over five years or however. Like you set up your budgets and you you kind of almost always try and at least break even. Some people try and put a little bit away if they can and, you know, have a little bit of a nest egg, right? That's how most households try and operate. Obviously, there are some households that are living literally hand-to-mouth, day-to-day, and they're struggling. That's why government is so important, right? Because we have to have targeted interventions to help people. A, A commonwealth, any government, doesn't operate like that, particularly a national government that has the power to levy taxes because a government is a continuous entity. Long after Anthony Albanese is dead, the Commonwealth of Australia will exist. Anthony Albanese is not incurring debt or spending money or investing in things. The Commonwealth is. We all are collectively now and in the future. 
So the idea of debt at a Commonwealth level is very, very different to household debt. You and I, we, you know, if we've got a mortgage, we've got to pay that back in 20 years or 30 years. And if we don't, the bank might come and take our house. If the Commonwealth wants to borrow more money, you know, borrows money, goes, you know what, I'm going to need to borrow a bit more money, it's going to get more money. If it decides it needs to change the economic settings in order to pay that money back differently to how it originally planned, it can legally do that. You and I can't go to the bank and go, you know what, we've just decided we're just not going to pay that back at that rate, we're going to pay it back at this rate. The bank after laughing at us for about 20 minutes, would throw us out and probably take our home. We have to understand, and this is what Keynes really understood, because in the in the lead up to and during the Great Depression, you had governments running economies like they were household budgets. So you had all these people unemployed. You had poverty, like extreme poverty, poverty on a level most Australians can't really fathom now. At the same time, governments were building up surpluses. And what Keynes said was, you're out of your heads. Spend the money. Get it out the door. Borrow money. Find money. Borrow money. Like, what are you doing? The the, the purpose of government is to help people live their lives and improve their living standards. And the economy, in quotes, is just... A, a label that's given to millions and millions of transactions that are undertaken every single day. So support that. Don't be a handbrake on it. Support it. And that's why the surplus now is good because the economy, the people don't need more help with transactions. There are some people who do. There are, there are targeted groups. That's why those policies are important. But overall, unemployment is very, very low. Wage growth is the highest it's been in 11 years. It's still not high enough, but it's the highest it's been in 11 years. You've got more people in full-time employment. You've got all of these indicators that say, actually, the economy is doing pretty well. It's a good time for the government to bank some money uh, for when times turn, because they probably will turn Pretty soon. And of course, they're doing. We're doing well in a context that it's difficult to see because inflation and cost of living have become a problem for people. Absolutely. And the interest rate rises from Philip Lowe are a huge problem. They're a problem for us. We've got a mortgage. They're yeah. a problem for everyone yeah. who's got a mortgage. And the and who'd want to be a renter right now? And who know? the hell would want to be a renter with like a seemingly arbitrary rental increases? Which let's just repeat again: the federal government does not have the constitutional power to freeze or cap. It is prevented by Section fifty-one of the Constitution. You know how we were talking about the voice and how if something goes into the Constitution, very hard to get out. Yeah. Just a reminder that there were referenda in 1948 under the Labor government of Ben Chifley and in 1973 under the Labor government of Gough Whitlam to change that provision in the Constitution to allow government to control rents and prices. And guess what? They both failed. They both failed. And look, one of our listeners sent us a question about this particular thing as well, saying, isn't it passing the buck to say it's a state issue? Well, no, it's not. It's a constitutional reality. But more to the point, for renters, what we need is more housing supply. Right, and that supply is difficult to come by. You know, for for most of the last twenty plus years, Australia, regardless of how many houses we've started to build, we've only actually finished about the same number every year. So there are genuine supply constraints that have to be addressed, and that's through improving uh, skills, that's through increasing the supply of building materials. There's a whole range of things that have to go. Again, it's difficult. And it's intersectional, 
and it's complex and it's much easier just to say rent caps and $10 billion for more homes. I get that. Like there is part of me that goes, yeah, that would be like let's just throw oh, a bucket of money and I fix the problem. I would love a simple solution that I could just say in a sentence, like just make rent cheaper. I would love that. You know, as a like I rented in London. I rented in London when I was doing medical experiments for money, people. Yeah. Like I understand what it's like to be in extreme rental stress. And like it's in those kind of like in a market like central London where I had to live because the kind of work I was trying to do. I mean, it's terrifying. And I should say, you know, when we talk about the surplus, right, in that context, the Albanese Labor government has given the largest increase to rent assistance uh, in 30 years, right? So, again, targeted, right? Oh, it's not enough. Sure. Mind you, the same people often say, well, rent assistance is really just giving a, giving a subsidy to landlords anyway. It's like you can't have your cake and eat it too, champ. It's either not enough or it's a subsidy to landlords. Either way, it's a mechanism that is available to the Commonwealth to try and mitigate some of the cost of increasing rents. It's not perfect. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very few public policy solutions are ever perfect. Or universal. And this is why you, me, a lot of people who listen to this podcast and a lot of people who work in the union movement and who who are union members and who do the work in the shop floor, whether it's in a shop or in a warehouse or a construction site or an offshore oil rig or whatever it is that you're doing, the reason we do that work is because it's a continuous struggle to improve the material circumstances and reality in which we live by improving policy, by improving implementation, by get, by getting better at what we're trying to achieve, which is absolute socialist paradise. Yeah, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm totally pro-socialist paradise. Every morning Ben and I get up and I say, what are you going to do today, Ben? And Ben, what do you say? Build socialism. And then Ben says to me, darling, what are you going to do today? And I go, well, I'm going to build some socialism. So that's how we start and that's how we mean to go on. But there's this really great quote that's in uh, Manufacturing Consent, which is the um, documentary and book about Noam Chomsky. And it's not actually from Chomsky. It's from someone else. I can never remember who it is. But it's a quote about how about um, the right symbols, the right dogmas and emotionally potent oversimplifications. And essentially if you're gravitating towards symbols, dogmas and emotionally potent oversimplifications, like let's just have a rent freeze, let's just have a rent cap, you're not actually looking for a solution, you're looking for morale. Yeah. It's that, that gives you a good feeling to just make an arbitrary demand. Just do it. Like I don't understand why the and government just doesn't do it. And it's like because we live in an economy of millions of individual microtransactions that is the largest cat herd in the world. <laughs> like that that is the greatest theoretical cat An economy is the greatest theoretical cat herd of all time. And if you're bringing like redistributive, uh, you know, humane egalitarian politics to that against the interests of invested capital, there's quite the fight in getting actually anything changed. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you and I, we sometimes say to each other, uh, are you looking for comfort or are you looking for a solution? Because 
and and this applies to all of us all the time, right? Like there are times when we just want to be angry about the way the world is and we, we were looking for comfort and we can find comfort in slogans. We can find comfort in being angry. We can find comfort in, in, in demands that we want to make upon the world. Um, but it's not, they're not solutions, right? And solutions are complex and they're difficult. And often we don't want them. And that's fine. Like there are times where I don't want you to give me a solution to my problem. I just want to be uh, unhappy. You just want to have a sook about it. I just want to have a sook about it. Yeah. Now I'm not saying that. That That doesn't make you a bad person. No, it doesn't. And I'm not saying that's where people, it's not saying. But sometimes we all want a bit of a sook. Sometimes I would have a bit of a sook. I have been a working artist since I was 15 years old. And just for anybody who still harbors in their heart of hearts, you know, the desire to become an artist. Let me tell you the best piece of advice I ever got. Professional life is three rejections a day and every single one of them is horrendous. Every project that gets rejected or failed or the play that gets sent off that gets a rejection letter, and I've written the rejection letters. I have been the party of no. Like I have been that person and it's hard. It's really, really hard. But my mum would say to me, you're allowed to beat yourself up for 10 minutes and then you've got to get off the floor and get on with it. And can I just... Extend your mum's saying, you're allowed. You're allowed to beat up the decision makers for ten minutes, and then you got to get up and get on with making the change happen. Mm. So if you do genuinely want rent controls in your state, then go out there and you campaign at a state and local level for more supply of housing, for genuine rent controls that don't lock people out of affordable homes that actually don't see people end up getting evicted after five years so that the landlord, as they do in San Francisco, can jack up the rent to a new higher level. Like there are complex things here. So you're allowed to be angry. You're allowed to be upset. You're allowed to want better from our government. We should all want that all the time. But if you want solutions, you've got to get up off the floor. You've got to look at the problem and all of its intersectionality and not just gravitate towards the slogans. Van, I want us to move on because we're going to have a long episode, I think, today. Um, the NAC has started, the National Anti-Corruption Commission. I say as a person who works in the professional entertainment industry, this is the best thing that has ever happened. So the NAC. I'm so excited. So this has been a campaign that has been run. I mean, I also hate corruption, but as far as I'm concerned, it's win, 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 win all round. So the NAC, of course, the campaign for a National Anti-Corruption Commission uh, I think is possibly 10 years in the making or at least eight years in the making. Uh, it has been a bipartisan approach from Labor, the Greens, uh, independents. The um, Liberals obviously promised one, I think, in 2016, didn't deliver it, put it off, watered it down to be nothing. Like continue to defend uh, those who have had corruption findings made against them in uh, New South Wales ICAC. It's quite phenomenal how committed they are to the concept that uh, corruption is just something that liberals don't do. Yet the NAC started on I, Saturday. History has a rather potent argument to make against that. Oh, absolutely. And look, you know, the federal ICAC, uh, sorry, the New South Wales ICAC has made that point. The federal NAC has had 44 referrals already. Anyone can make a referral. On its first day. On its first day. Uh, so opened on Saturday, uh, 44 referrals. It's also had uh, 20-something uh, phone calls it has to return. Look, 
It's coming at an interesting time, and your uh, Guardian colleague, Paul Carp, has written about this in regards to Stuart Robert. Because, of course, Brother Stuart. Because, of course, Stuart Robert, a uh, very successful fundraiser for the Liberal Party for a long time in Queensland, has resigned from the federal seat of Fadden, where there will be a by election. I believe it's on, what is it, the 15th of July, not this Saturday, Saturday after. Uh, and of course, uh, it has emerged that there is an allegation against Stuart Robert uh, by someone uh, in relation to Synergy 360, uh, which was, it appears to be a company that owns property and leases it, uh, or was leasing it, to uh, the Department of Social Services uh, for Centrelink offices. And the allegation, which Stuart Robert denies, I should point out, the allegation is that the owners of Synergy 360 uh, had proposed a share transfer, and this is a quote, designed to facilitate the flow of funds through United Marketing and onward to Stuart Robert. Stuart Robert obviously denies this. Bill Shorten, who is now the Minister for Government Services, has asked Services Australia to advise what the next appropriate steps would be. Uh, The campaign in uh, Fadden has already picked up on uh, on this as well, uh, with Anthony Albanese launching the Labor candidates' uh, uh, campaign up there. Basically saying Stuart Robert has been uh, in, was in, well he was involved in robo debt. The robo debt royal commission has made that very very clear. Uh, the robo debt royal commission got an extension on its reporting deadline so that it could make referrals to the NAC. That 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 is well known as well. That will report on Friday uh, of this week rather than uh, before. It was supposed to be the end of the last financial year, so June thirty. This is quite a uh, quite a significant. Uh, point in uh, Australian history. So you've got the Labor candidate, Letitia Del Fabro. Who's a nurse, I believe. Who I believe is a nurse. I think you're absolutely right there, Van. Uh, and, and who is running for Fadden. Uh, I don't even have the name of the Liberal candidate. Uh, but this has come at a time when the knack has been set up. Stuart Robert, quite quite unexpectedly quit, uh, then kind of went silent and disappeared for a little while. Anthony Albanese came out and said, the guy hasn't turned up to work. He says he's quit, but he hasn't actually handed in his resignation. He handed it in sort of like the next day. Because the rules don't apply to Brother Stewie because he's in with God apparently. And and he has been the LNP, a major fundraiser for the LNP for a long time. He, as, I want to stress again, he denies any wrongdoing, but of course, the NAC just has this absolute smorgasbord to choose from. It's so fun, isn't it? It's isn't got, it fun? It's got these Synergy 360 contracts, uh, sports rorts, the issues with PwC, uh, the Leppington Triangle um, airport deal. Uh, it's got just, you know, so many uh, things that happened during the Morrison era. Uh, and Stuart Roberts' fingerprints are on a lot of these uh, issues, obviously, robo debt, uh, some of the stuff around uh, procurement in the National Disability Insurance Agency uh, during the Morrison era. These are all things where the NAC uh, can off its own bat. By the way, it doesn't require a referral; it can just off its own bat go and investigate. Uh, of course, 
you know, we've already seen uh, our good friend Barnaby say that <laughs> any politicisation of the NAC uh, by p- parties uh, referring other parties uh, would be, you know, a betrayal and an undermining of the process. And Tanya Plibersek had a good point to say, the great thing about the NAC is we don't have to refer anyone. The NAC can make its own decisions and investigate whatever it deems appropriate. And people from the public can ask the NAC. Now, it's not to say everything that gets referred, and the NAC's been very clear, look, things that are very historical or things that aren't necessarily relevant or things where there's a low likelihood of a finding of corruption, we're not going to get into. So, you know, don't worry. I mean, they didn't say this bit, but I'm saying don't worry. You know, cookers aren't going to be able to flood the NAC with looking to uh, flight paths and radio waves and, you know. Jewish space lasers. It's just so, you know. They may get a few of those, but they assure us that there's a special rule set up in their email inbox for that. <laughs> um, so, look, it's a it's going to be interesting. Nobody expects Labor to win Fadden. Mind you, Aston was a to be fair. A, nobody expected Labor to win Aston. And and that hail Mary, shout out to Mary Doyle, hail Mary. I was going to say that hail Mary came off, didn't it? So, look, you know, good luck to uh, Letitia. We hope that she does get up. Obviously. You know, we want to see more Labor MPs and less LNP MPs. It's difficult, very difficult. It's Tiger Country up there. Stuart Robert held that seat because it was a safe seat and he didn't really have to go and talk to anyone who wasn't, you know, writing checks for the party. Yeah, but to be fair, just on a very basic level, I'd rather have a nurse in Parliament than Stuart Robert or anyone he has uh, negotiated a government (laughs) contract for, like, allegedly. Yeah. So, look, be interesting to see what happens. Maybe that'll end up at NAC. Maybe it won't. Can I just... Somebody put in a complaint against the Diablo ad for being offensive to Christians. <laughs> but Stuart Robert, who's very adamant yeah. and almost aggressively claims a Christian identity, is is being accused of things that I, I think the rule book of the religion is pretty explicit against. And not for the first time. We've got to remember... Just like, who are these people? We've got to remember Stuart Robert was found to have uh, misused... Acted inappropriately? Misused a parliamentary entitlement, had to pay back money for a massive internet bill, which nobody could really explain. Tens of thousands of dollars, I believe that was for. Uh, that there was holograms. There was. I reckon it must have been holograms. When he was the minister, because no one could watch that much Game of Thrones. Not even you. Well, even when he was social services minister, and there was a problem with the website, he had claimed he had claimed there had been a cyber attack, when in fact it was just that. The, they had broken the website, like it just wasn't working properly and he later had to apologise for misleading the public around that. Like this is a guy who has a, a history and form of saying and doing things that are misleading and quite frankly, as I understand uh, the Christian religion from my um, Baptist minister uncle uh, and grandparents, uh, is not particularly Christian. Uh, uh, but, you know, Stuart Robert, look, don't let the door hit you on the way out and maybe we'll see you again at a NAC hearing in the mm. near future. Christianity is more of an interpretive dance. So it would seem. Let's move on to the good news, Van. Uh, oh, you're so happy about this good news. Share it, Benny. Well, I'm happy about the good news because we talk a lot about electric vehicles on this show in the good news section. And, look, sometimes we're talking about things that are, you know, niche, right? The scientists are doing them and that's good and we need the science and the science drives innovation. This is a story about Toyota. Now, 
You can call Toyota many things, but niche is not one of them. Massive global car manufacturer. They have got a breakthrough in solid state batteries for electric vehicles that will allow a range of 745 miles, roughly 1,500 kilometers. That's a lot more than I get with a full tank of petrol, and that can be charged in 10 minutes. This is a huge break, breakthrough. They're talking about being able to roll this out by 2025. And they expect that they'll be manufacturing electric vehicles with the solid state batteries uh, as soon as 2027. Now, that's it's, it seems like a long way away, but really it's not. Like it's three or four years away. Mm-hmm. That's a game changer. If Toyota, one of the largest manufacturers of cars in the world, is able to move to a mass produced, low cost, um, highly efficient, electric vehicle uh, battery that gives significant range. Uh, We know already there are electric vehicles that have, you know, all the towing power that Scott Morrison claimed they didn't have. We know they've got good range now, but, you know, to get basically double the range you can get with a full tank of petrol Mm -hmm. off a 10-minute charge would be incredible. I mean, for me, that is is game-changing technology. And, of course, that means that, it, it also provides uh, support and incentive for further development in electric vehicles because Toyota mass produces this, other car companies are going to want to be doing the same. They're going to want to be going, okay, how do we get an advantage over Toyota? Do we get more range? Do we get quicker uh, charge time? Do we require less uh, electricity full stop to do the charge? All sorts of innovations come from when these innovations become mass available and mass produced. So I think it's really good news. Uh, 2025, 2027, you know, if they're replacing the batteries in EV vehicles in 2025 and they're rolling out mass uh, produced new cars with the batteries in them from 2027, you know, that might mean our next car, I don't know, could be a Toyota. This is not a paid ad for Toyota. I'll be very clear about that. I've never owned a Toyota in my life. I'd never planned on buying a Toyota. Uh, who knows? Maybe the game will change. I dream of an EV. Well, who knows? The the rides I've had in EVs have been amazing. It's true. It's true. I'll never forget that EV drive that we took uh, with uh, an unnamed friend of ours who <laughs> put me behind the wheel of uh, their electric vehicle, which was like getting into a space capsule, uh, and then they put on the Bond theme uh, as I drove around the corners and streets uh, of their neighbourhood, uh, and I couldn't decide if it was fun and funny or mean and hilarious. <laughs> Why not all? Why not both? Why not all at the same time? Why not both? Look, it's for what I thought was going to be a slow news day, we've actually had a lot to talk about. Oh, it's because I look at you adoringly whenever you talk about neo-Keynesian economics. I just, oh, I love it. It just makes me so happy. I, I just want to remind everybody that there are alternatives to the system that we live in. Yeah. That a lot of highly intelligent people have done immense amounts of work to think through. That's right. And guess what? They're not simple. They're not simple solutions. No. And Ben and I didn't start this podcast to offer people, you know, like comforting slogans. We started it because we want to talk about things actually matter and how we get from one moment of materiality into the next one. We are really desperately material people. 
you know? It's true. It doesn't mean materialistic. That doesn't mean we get into no. brands. It means that... It doesn't mean we're buying NFTs of monkeys. It, we're not buying <laughs> NFTs of monkeys. But, I mean, is that material or is it kind of post-material? Oh, That's in a conversation for another time. Yeah. But we start... But where our ideology comes from and the reason why we are very explicitly... Labor people and explicitly neo-Keynesian and explicitly democratic socialists. And labor movement people. And labor movement people and unionists is because it's about what do we have to do to physically, materially, practically change the shape of what looks what life looks like for the vast for the vast majority of people. I'm not that concerned about rich people. I think they can look after themselves. But for everybody else, how do we get into the next material moment of comfort? Because we grew up with nothing. Like Ben grew up poor. You know, I had a dad who was in and out of work. It was really rough. Yeah. You know, and and what we went through in those formative years and the, the limitations we saw on our families and our communities that were material limitations, things they couldn't experience, doors they couldn't work, walk through, you know, we want to change that for people. And you change that by engaging in difficult ideas, difficult conversations. Absolutely. And you do that collectively. That's why we always suggest you join your union because not just at the workplace but in your community, at a state level, at a national level, the union movement is a place where people can come together to make those changes happen. They are material changes, whether they're changes in your wages, whether they're changes in your shift allowance, whether they're changes in your hours, whether they're changes around the rights you have because family domestic violence leave has become a right under the National Employment Standards. Superannuation is now a right under the National Employment Standards. And, of course, the new wave, the next wave of industrial relations reform will be about the gig economy. You can expect us to talk more about that in future episodes. But, of course, this podcast, it's almost been three years since we started the podcast, which blows my mind, episode 141, uh, we are growing the audience all the time. June was another 42,000 downloads, something like that. We're rapidly approaching a million. I think we're just about to hit 950,000 downloads. Just huge support. Like, share. What do Send I get us- at a million downloads, Benny? You, you're going to get a little party. We'll do a little party. But, you know, liking, sharing the podcast, it's so important. Send us your questions. We try and answer them. If you don't feel we've answered your question, let me know. We'll try and get to it. If not, in this show on the week, uh, the weekend wrap, uh, which we do on, which I do on Sundays. But of course, the people who make a financial contribution to helping us grow the audience and it helping us make it sustainable, so we can be free for people who don't have the dollars on hand. That's right. The podcast will always be free to listen to, always free to download. But for those who do make a contribution, whether it's once off or a buck a week, you know, thank you so much. You really do make it possible for us to grow the audience and to get the message to more people. For those who make a $10 a month uh, to extend our reach, and those who make a $20 a month cadre, we like to give you a shout out every episode. And Van, has the list of cadre and extend the reach supporters and we'll read them out as soon as she brings up the list. <laughs> Can you tell I'm playing for time? 
Our cadre, Shamila Lakal, Joe Lockery, Steph Karina Bali, at Jancy Campbell, Leona Gibbons, and Coleman. At Roth Kenner 888, Bronwyn Cockington, Terry Butler, Jack Powell, Gail Ferguson, Rebecca Left, Fanning for Longman, Matthew Hadley, Colum Kelly, Ali Vance, Mary M, Love Your Work, Yeet Yeti, at Anthony Bowden, Claire, Jason, Dallas, Camille, Akiva Burris, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aiken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Vanna McNeil, Jed Carney, Kristen Cole, Bronwyn, Punch Dunk Veteran, Jenny Forster 7, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hanny Honda, Matt Bush, Richard Sands, Glenn Robbie, Brush, Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, Leah Jingles. I don't have Twitter. My name is Susan Myers. At Carrie Nash, twenty. Billy Three, McCabe, Nurse, Simon, At Katagal, Lauren Nashen, Banjo, Narunga Man, John Sharp, and Peter Bath, Louise Watson slash Red, White, and Blue Lou, and our extend the reach supporters. I ran out of breath. I know. Stuart Mung. Blagoya, Matthew Case, Mikey Mark, Vic and Bit, Adrian Valente, it's Ritter, Caradale 68, Frank Nehus, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry, Arthur Pauline, Bates, Shane Horsfall, Helen, Janet McCalman, Jeremy Mauer, Rosie Elliott, Lara, at Robert Notfield 1, Michael Wiles, Sanj Kelly, Dorena, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron Tridragon, Daniel, at Crazy Kezzer, John DeHaan, Ange Vennel, Anna Uran, Kathy Burgess, Melanie, Dinning, Jaddy A, not on Twitter, Penelope, Judge Shane, Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, S. Wood, at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lala, Richard Reverse, someone Vida W, Nandita Hannum, Maury Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honeygal, Vess, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Elian and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Lizette, Twizzle, Bunker Badger, Katie Ward, Adriel Never Long Body, Sandy Baumgart, Up Not Sandy B, and Renee McGee. You are all just awesome. Congratulations to all of you for supporting this podcast. You have made it a huge success. We remain one of the most successful and well-charting podcasts on Apple Podcasts, the largest network of podcasts in Australia. And we are independent, which is a... I just, I can't believe. That. We we lasted. Thanks yeah. to you, we have lasted. A lot of the independent podcasts have disappeared. That's right. Over the past few years. And, and somehow, two raggedy little Ballarat socialists have survived. So, and it's because of you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for being part of our community. Like, we love getting the emails and the tweets and the engagement. It's awesome. It's fantastic. And don't forget to let us know if you've joined your union or you've used the podcast to help someone else join the union. Those are some incredibly heartwarming stories. Uh, and we'll try and share some of those next time. Until next time, love you, Vanny. Love you. Bye. Bye.